Well, it's true in life in general, and it's true at nine. We learn from Job this morning, specifically applied to parents and moms. It's important things to learn from Job this morning. We're doing just basically an overview of the book because I think it's such an important book to understand the message and the meaning of it. Much of the section that we're in right now deals with misunderstandings. Chapters 4 through 33 are these long, lengthy, kind of frustrating dialogues between Job and his friends. And we saw last time that Job's friends have a lot of misunderstandings and they're reflected in the book. Well, Job himself also has some misunderstandings that we need to learn from. And that's what we're going to look at here. Job doesn't lose his faith. He continues believing. He has faith. His faith is present, but it's poisoned by the pain that he's experiencing. It's poisoned by the dilemma that he goes through. And and much of the book concerns a dilemma that we're going to look at this morning that I think has pressing implications on family life, and particularly motherhood, which is full of great struggles. And we learn wisdom and gain help from the Word of God as always. Job chapter 9, this morning we're going to be looking at some of his misunderstandings. We're going to begin in Job chapter 9, verse 11. Job chapter 9 and verse 11. And keep in mind, much of what we read here is the Bible recording Job's errors, which will later be corrected by God. Job chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, as Job is facing his terrible trials and dilemmas, he responds in the wrong way. We want to learn from that. Job, 11, Job chapter 9 and verse 11. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him are bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. First lesson to learn from Job's misunderstandings is don't charge God with wrongdoing. Don't charge God with wrongdoing. Look at Chapter 9, verse 11. He passes by me, and I see him not. This is one of Job's dilemmas. Where's he at? Where is God at? I don't see him. I don't know what he's doing. I don't perceive him. And then look at what Job says in verse 13. God will not turn back his anger. This is an error. That is false. God does turn back his anger. And this is where the pain of Job's trials have poisoned his faith. Job is skewed in his view and understanding of God. God does turn back his anger. Look at what Job says in verse 15. Though I am in the right. Job is very clear in justifying himself and his beliefs and his thoughts and his accusations. And then in verse 17, he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Now look at those last two words. Without cause. Do you see what he's accusing God of? He's accusing God of being unjust. 
And friends, what Job doesn't know is that God does have a cause and a reason. He just doesn't know it yet. So don't charge God with wrongdoing. Look at chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Chapter 10 and verse 1. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Look at what Job says there in verse 3. Does it seem good to you to oppress? See, this is Job's biggest dilemma. He thinks that God is not good. To despise the work of your hands. From Job's understanding, it seems like God hates him. And that's not true. Or look at where Job's dilemma unfolds more, and this is going to be part of what, God, what Job charges God with wrongdoing. The end of verse 3, that God favors the designs of the wicked. He favors the designs of the wicked, this old dilemma of why the wicked prosper, which is part of the fallen world in which we live. These are false conclusions Job has come to that God is oppressing him, that God despises him, and that God favors the designs of the wicked. Those are false conclusions. Don't charge God with wrongdoing is one of the lessons for us to learn from Job's experience regarding this reality that the wicked prosper. And and again, Job's, Job's injunction there is that God is unjust in this. Look at chapter 12 and verse 6. Chapter 12 and verse 6. The tents of the robbers are at peace. Those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. They're idolaters. They carry their God around. And notice, they're at peace. They're secure. You ever feel like that? It's easy to misinterpret reality and the world in which we live, particularly when we're in the pain of a trial. That's what Job's doing here. Look at chapter 21. Really, all of chapter 21 deals with this dilemma of the wicked prospering, but I just want to bring it out a bit for you. Job 21, beginning in verse 7. Job 21 and verse 7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Keep in mind, Job's family has all been, all of his children have died. Verse 9, their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? That their calamity comes upon them? That God distributes pains in his anger? That they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? Now, now you know what he just did in verse 18? He just quoted a, a biblical principle that the wicked are like chaff which the wind drives away, which the Bible affirms. That's found in Psalm 1 and throughout the Scripture. So you see what... What Job is doing here, he's quoting scripture and saying, it sure doesn't seem like that's the case based on what I'm going through. Friends, don't charge God with wrongdoing based on what you see.
Chapter 24, one more. Again, really all of chapter 24 deals with the wicked. I'm just going to give you a bit of a flavor of it. Chapter 24 and verse 1. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Or why are times of judgment not kept by the Almighty? The, the evil are getting away with their sins. God's not doing anything seemingly. Look at chapter 24 and verse 12. From out of the city the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. See, these are false statements. Job is in the wrong. Chapter 24, look at verses 21 and 22. Again, talking about the wicked and what they can get away with. They wrong the barren childless woman and do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. You see what Job's problem is? Job's problem is with how God is running the universe. And it can be so easily to fall into this as we face terrible, terrible distresses that are common to this life, sadly. Job stands as a warning to us not to charge God with wrongdoing. Friends, as if we could run the universe any better. You see, a right view of God's providence can lead to really wrong conclusions if you're not careful. This is why I said last time, the doctrine of God's providence is perilous if it's not rightly understood and applied. And that's what Job is doing here. And this is one of the, 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 the things the book will teach us over the next few weeks. God is in charge, yes. But what does that lead you to say? Well, before we move on, let me, let me take a minute to answer this from Scripture. If you go to Psalm 73, again, this is not the only place in the Bible that deals with this dilemma of why the wicked prosper. This is why, friends, the Bible is so helpful and so clear in dealing with the real dilemmas in life, that the real struggles of life particularly emphasize and bring out. Look at Psalm 73, a psalm which deals with this very issue. We're not going to go through it in detail or in depth, but you can come back and revisit it. It's a, it's a great psalm to revisit, particularly when we struggle with these issues of why are they seemingly doing so well and God doesn't seem like he's doing anything about their evil and I'm over here struggling and suffering. Psalm 73 is written from that perspective. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure, pure in heart. Now that's so important that the psalm begins that way. You see the psalmist's confession of faith. He recognizes and he knows that God is good. But his circumstances and his trials have caused him. His observations and experiences have led him to think differently. Look at verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Look at verse 12. Psalm 73, 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Have you ever felt like that in distress? I've been living a faithful life. They seemingly are, are they're living a clearly wicked, depraved life. They're doing well, and I'm struggling like heck. You ever feel like that? This is why the Bible is so real and so true. It's why you need the book of Job. It's why the book of Job, such a long book, was inspired by God to show us 
the truth about God and his rule and his goodness. Well, back to Psalm 73, a bit more. Look at verses 16 and 17. Here's the hinge verse where the psalmist goes from this struggle with why the wicked prosper. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Amen. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now you see where he gets discernment and insight into this reality that he's struggling with. It's in the sanctuary of God where he hears the word of God and worships God with the people of God. That's when he discerns their end and he recognizes this may appear to be the prospering of the wicked in this life, but there is an end coming. Look at the last two verses of Psalm 73. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Don't charge God with wrongdoing. Secondly, don't believe the circumstances. Don't believe the circumstances. Go to chapter 30 and I'll show you what I mean. We don't charge God with wrong and we don't believe the circumstances. Look at chapter 30, 20 and 21. These are, these are probably the two clearest verses that emphasize Job's dilemma and Job's problem with God. Friends, Job has a problem with God. And part of the book, part of the way the book serves us is to encourage us not to think this way. Chapter 30 and verse 20. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Now, you see his dilemmas here. Number one in verse 20, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. Silence from God. Distress, horrible tragedy has struck Job, a righteous man. He calls out to God for help. You do not answer me. Look at the next part of verse 20. I stand. Essentially, I'm here. I haven't moved. And you only look at me. This charge is charging God with idleness. God's not doing anything here. He's not doing anything for me. And then, then the worst, Job's dilemma, you have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Well, what are we to learn from this? Well, first of all, I hope you see in the Bible, one of the amazing things about this book is it really addresses the pressing matters of life and the reality of faith. It's a, it, isn't just such, it, it isn't just some flowery picture of life is going to be all great and everything's going to go swell for you. Quite the, that is not life in the world. It paints a realistic picture of life, particularly of trying to live a righteous life in a wicked world and dealing with suffering all the time and struggles. And Job, the righteous man, accuses God of wrong and then he believes his circumstances. You see, there's a, there's a common root to Job's misunderstandings. There's a common root to, to what has led Job to respond like this. And the common root are the trials 
and the tragedies that he's gone through. That's what led to it. So his responses are an improper understanding of what's taken place. His charging with God, God with wrong, his thinking that the wicked prosper, thinking that God is not going to deal with them, his thinking, his false thinking that God has turned hostile to me. It, it can be easy in the reality of life as you, as you struggle and you, particularly those who go through terrible tragedies, you can look at this tragedy and, and look at it and you can come to the conclusion, you know God rules and you can come to the conclusion, God must be against me. Or the false conclusion, God has turned cruel to me. You see, friends, dis- these these destructive circumstances have led Job to deceiving conclusions. Well, where do you get the right conclusions? And that's the, the, the last point, the, the best point that I can make for anybody. You get right conclusions from the Word of God. You don't believe your circumstances, you believe the Word of God. That's what God's people must do. Not believe the circumstances which are always going to be up and down, and there's going to be a lot of down because of the world we live in. You can't believe the circumstances. You can't base what you believe about God on that. You've got to believe the Word of God. You've got to believe the Word of God. That's where you come to right conclusions. And friends, we've got to base our convictions, what we believe, which we need more than ever when we suffer or when we face tragedy. We've got to base our convictions on what God says in His Word, not by the circumstances we face in life. We've got to believe his word. That is the best advice I can offer to any parent or any mom. Believe God's word. Believe God's word. Particularly in in family life. Just think of this for a moment. Your example matters to your children and your other family members and your extended family. And particularly what you do with the trials that come your way because they will come. They see your life. They see how you respond. So friends... Moms, respond with faith in the Word of God. Believe God's Word. Even when you don't understand what's happening in your life. Your convictions have to be based on truth. One of the things that, you, that we learn from the book of Job that I, I'm, I can't get into today, resolution comes for Job when God speaks. Resolution comes for Job when God speaks. It is from His Word that resolution comes. Friends, that's why we need to go to the Scripture to get our bearings and to get our perspective. Our perspectives for navigating a world like this, we need divine guidance and we need to regularly be making course adjustments and corrections based on what the Word of God says. We we get our moorings from the Word of God. We're held fast by the truth of the Word of God and by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me give you an example. If you look at Habakkuk, a prophet in the Old Testament. Habakkuk is unique in that he's a prophet with a dilemma too. Now he hasn't experienced tragedy, personal tragedy like Job has. But it's a book of dilemmas. And his dilemma is with the providence of God. His dilemma is similar to Job's in that he doesn't understand how or why God is doing what he's doing. Essentially, first of all, he starts out with the problem, why is judgment not coming upon these evil people? God says, I'm going to do it. Then Habakkuk has a problem with the way God's going to do it. I just want to show you one verse about, as Habakkuk is dealing with these dilemmas about what God is doing and how God is going to do it, look at what Habakkuk says in chapter 2 and verse 1. 
I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. Now, if you read the context of the book, he is in distress right here. And he's in distress over what God has said he's going to do. I'm going to take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's got confidence as the prophet of God. God will give him a word, and God does. And furthermore, before that, he is going to wait patiently on God. Incidentally, if you want to give your mom a Mother's Day gift, bring her to church tonight. We're going to look at the book of Habakkuk. What an awesome Mother's Day present. Habakkuk on Sunday night because it goes so well with the Job text. So important. to I mean, give your mom the gift of God's providence on Mother's Day. Friends, one of the things we've got to learn as we deal with distresses, just, just practically speaking, is, is not to listen to ourselves. Certainly don't listen to the circumstances as they are. I think most of us have this inner dialogue that goes on most of the time. Right? As we're going through life, we have this inner dialogue in our mind. We're, we're talking to ourselves a good bit. And I don't know about you, maybe it's just because I'm a negative person, but my inner di- dialogue has a lot of depravity in it. I tend to focus on the negative. In that inner dialogue, it's easy to curse people. It's easy to say and think bad things. It's easy to dwell on and meditate on anger, which leads to bitterness. Friends, this is why you need the Word of God in your mind and in your heart and meditate on it and force that other garbage and junk out trying to understand your circumstances based on your human understanding. Force that stuff out and force the Word of God in. And let the Word of God shape how you think and how you live and be meditating on the Word of God. You can't change the circumstances, but you can change what you think about in the midst of them. This is one of Job's other errors that we won't go into today. Where is the prayer here? He doesn't meditate on Scripture. He scoffs at Scripture. As if the wicked are like the chaff which the wind drives away. His attitude is so poisoned. Friends, our convictions have got to be based on the Word of God, and those convictions have to stand through the trials of life. Don't listen to yourself. Meditate on the Word of God. We walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith and not by sight. There's this hymn that we sing. I know Michael is working on it with the choir. It's one of my favorite hymns, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, We're going to sing it. Uh, in a few weeks, and it says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Because that's what we've got to learn to do. Our senses are feeble. We can't see it all. We certainly don't know it all. And we can't put God under our judgment by our feeble sense. We must trust him for his grace. Now, I've got to just take a minute and answer some of these errors of Job. Because I think it's important for us to answer these in our life. Because in the real crucible of trial and difficulty, we, we, some, we feel this way and think this way, wrongly sometimes. Chapter 30 and verse 20, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. God is not silent. God has spoken very clearly in his word. God is never silent to you, ever! You have his word, his inspired word. You have so much more to go on than Job had, than the Old Testament prophets had. 
He's never silent. You have the Psalms where you have the man of God, David, who's praying through his trials and difficulties and worshiping through his pain. You have the Apostle Paul and a, a man who felt so distressed that he despaired of life itself. You ever feel like that? You have a person you can learn from. In the inspired Word of God, you need hope. Don't know how things are going to turn out. Well, you have the book of Revelation. It shows you no matter what suffering you endure in this life, and you will endure much if you're faithful, Jesus is victor. God has spoken. God is not silent. Hebrews 1, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. You have the teachings of the Son of God, eternal, truthful. God is not silent, Job. I stand and you only look at me. This is one of Habakkuk's dilemmas too. God seems idle. I mean, look at this place. Look at this world. Look at this life. What's God going to do about that? God seems idle. God is not idle, ever. It's one of the great, powerful lessons of the book of Job. In fact, this is God's primary answer to Job when you get to the last chapters. Job, I'm involved in and I'm doing a lot more than you know about, pal. The book of Job reveals God as involved in the most minuscule things in life to show us and to show Job, I'm involved in every aspect of your life. Every aspect of family life, the struggles that moms go through, the heartache over children, and sometimes spouses, God is not idle in any of that. This is why you need the book of Job. You need to understand God as he's revealed himself in the book of Job. This is why I believe God gave us such a long book with such a terrible picture of suffering to guide us as we go through our tragedies and trials. God is not idle. You have turned cruel to me. Job is wrong in his assessment of God's dealings in his life. God is, Job is wrong. God is not cruel ever. And this is where Psalm 73 begins so helpfully. This is why confessions of faith based on Scripture are so important in your life. That a basic confession of faith that is that is eternal and true, no matter what I see or experience, God, surely God is good. Surely God is good. He's my refuge. I'll speak of his wonders. He's not cruel. He's never cruel. Friends, you have the gospel. The, the good news of what God did. Amazing, isn't it? These, these events, this life, can make you question the love of God. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is proven by his own work for your soul. You, that's the most important truth in the word of God to preach to yourself regularly, to remind of yourself of regularly. God has proven that he's not cruel. Quite the contrary. God loves so powerfully and remarkably that he sends his son to die for sinners. To give them life. To redeem them and ransom them and save them. Remember the gospel. 
Well, what Jesus did for your sins. And you can't charge God with wrongdoing. And you won't believe the circumstances of life because you believe the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he was raised from the dead, that he rules over all. He's powerfully going to return one day and make all things right and all things new. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for that good news of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ to save our souls, to give us an eternal inheritance that will not fade away, kept for us in heaven. Praise you for that, Lord. God, I just pray that you would, through your word and the spirit and this truth and the gospel and what you've done, God, that you would comfort the hurting in this room, those who are now dealing with tragedies and pains and trials. God, you'd give them comfort. They would find refuge in you and they'd find solace and comfort in your word. God, you'd stir us all to meditate on the truth that we would never scoff like Job did. But God, we would not judge you by our feeble sense. We trust you for your grace. So Lord, we need help. I do pray you'd help the moms be godly women in a difficult world. You'd help the dads be godly men who order their life by your truth in a wicked age. God, we just pray you'd protect our kids from their own temptations and from the wickedness of the world. We pray they'd be saved. Help us as a church clearly proclaim the gospel to them and live out its implications for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.